Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Roz Savage. Roz, how are you doing? Really great. Wonderful to be here with you. Me too, especially because uh, we were, before hitting record, we were starting talking about, like, oh, we've got to record. So I. <laughs> yes, we right, wouldn't I'm gonna want read... our words to be lost to posterity, would we? <laughs> and all right, I want to start with, with a little bit here uh, of your bio. After 11 years as a management consultant, Roz left the corporate world in search of a life of greater meaning and purpose. An environmental epiphany in Peru led her to the epic endeavor of rowing solo across, I've got to say this properly, of rowing solo across the Atlantic, Indian, and Pacific Oceans to raise awareness of the ecological crisis. Four Guinness World Records, an MBE, which I guess means knighthood, uh, uh, something of the British Empire? It is something of our non-existent British Empire, yeah. it's actually <laughs> The MB is a, a member of the Order of the British Empire. It's a long way below a knighthood, or a, a damehood would be the female equivalent. And now, but then, and yet she failed because the environmental degradation continued unabated. In the 11 years since her last ocean voyage, she searched for the leverage points of change that might move humanity to a different trajectory, away from disaster and toward living in harmony with the natural world. And that's what you're, you're, I mean, if someone goes and looks you up, they're going to see all the stuff about crossing the Atlantic. And that's amazing. That's, and if you look at your reel of you giving talks, it's like, um, I suspect that audiences are just overwhelmingly inspired at what they get. And I think that what got us talking before re hitting record was that I said that while I was reading your new book, The Ocean and a Drop, which by the way, before I read it, it was like, great title. Uh, Thank you. Seemed quite fitting. And I found myself literally, like I'm reading the book, I'm reading it on my screen, and then I look at myself and I'm at the edge of my seat and I'm like leaning forward, like what comes next? And you asked me why. And I said, because I, before reading it, I knew about your environmental interests. I knew about your rowing. I knew about these amazing things and the world records and things like that. And I, that stuff is just utterly fascinating. And I was looking forward to talking about those things. And I would love to talk to you about those things. But this story was much more fascinating. And for people who know what I'm doing of living off, living off the grid is just this most superficial part of it, of understanding what's going on. Why do I, why do I believe all of these things that I believe? Why am I behaving the way that I'm behaving? Why is everyone around me saying what I'm doing is impossible, yet going to Mars is easy? And you're talking to the same people, you're going through similar transformations. And when I think of someone, when I hear someone rowing across the Atlantic, I think to myself, I wonder if I could do that. That really motivates me. And so I often share what I'm doing, thinking if people hear what I'm doing, they'll respond like I do. But I think most people, they disengage with what I'm doing. They say, oh, I can't do that. We love to have those nice, reassuring, self-limiting beliefs, don't we, about what's yeah. possible and what isn't possible. I mean, I honestly believe that, that most people, um, including people with disabilities, have, have rowed across the Atlantic. I believe that anybody could do it if they were sufficiently motivated. I mean, people go, when, when they hear that I've rowed at university, they're like, oh, so you're a rower, like you're one of those people. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, yeah, but actually being able to row is only about 1% of what it takes to row across an ocean. The rest of it is much more about managing logistics, fundraising, taking relevant navigational and meteorological courses, 
And then once you're actually on the water, it's about looking after your boat and your body and your mind and just trying not to drive yourself crazy. You know, just trying to stay calm enough and together enough to get to the other side of the ocean. So there's nothing really special about me. Like I'm not uber athletic. I'm five foot four, kind of normal builds. There is nothing exceptional about me apart from at one point in my life, enough factors, variables coincided at one point to make it seem like a good idea. (laughs) What was I thinking? Um, To row across an ocean or three. And so I committed to making it happen. And I just kept showing up each day during the 14 months that it took me to get ready for my first ocean, the Atlantic. And every day I just did something to get me closer to being ready for that goal. But um, the reason that I did it was, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'd had this environmental awakening in 2003. I desperately wanted to do something to raise awareness of our ecological crisis. For about six months, I was in this agony of waiting, basically saying to the universe, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm willing, I'm able, give me something that I can do to get people's attention for this environmental message. And one day the universe went, right, you've asked for it. Like we are going to give you a job, we're going to give you a job. (laughs) You're going to use your rowing skills and you're going to row across the world's oceans using those adventures through blogs and social media and talks and books um, to get the message out there about the environment and why we need to take better care of our planet. And I don't know if you've had this sort of, maybe you first felt this way when you felt inspired to live off grid. There's sort of that sense of excitement and terror, like knowing in your heart, hell yes, this is the thing that I really want to do. And your mind going, but, but, but here are all the reasons why it's going to be hard, why you're going to look like an idiot, how you're going to fail. Like it's our brain's job to try and keep us safe. And so it's very good, like that little voice of, fear like in the movie inside out you know the voice of fear is running around inside your head going no 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 let's not do this it's terrible but then I really just came up with a this approach well if I was going to do this ridiculous thing then what would I need to do to make it happen so I wrote on an excel spreadsheet because that's where I roll um, like the mother of all to-do lists well if I was going to do this ridiculous thing who would I talk to? What books would I read? What courses would I take? What would I need to buy? So how much money would I need? And just broke it down into all of these steps and then looked at the list and sort of went, well, it's a really long list, but there is nothing on there that isn't doable. And so it all started to seem very possible. And I think having that that belief that hmm, it's a stretch goal but it is something that I could do and I'm willing to commit to this from there on it's really just showing up and taking it one step or one oar stroke at a time that is how most most of our problems have happened as being you know death by a thousand cuts or a thousand million cuts or eight billion cuts. Um, And I think that's also how we start to solve these problems is just committing to a particular path 
and just keep showing up each day and doing a little bit more in that direction. If that makes sense. Yeah, I I want to ask about that. I also want to compare uh, going off grid was a, a different story for me. And uh, it's because I started in a different it, something like 10 years ago. I challenged myself to go for a week without buying any packaged food. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was no goal to change the world. And it, years later, when I look back, I realized, actually, I think part of me actually wanted to fail because if I couldn't do it, then I could say, well, I tried. And, yeah. you know, here's proof that what I do doesn't matter. And you could retreat comfortably back into your comfort zone knowing that yes. you, you tried and it just wasn't doable. Right. And, and you know, oh, I have faith that some smarter person I will figure this out. And, you know, oh, we figured out everything so far and all, all the stuff that we tell ourselves. And yet... To my great surprise, after a period of what I would now call withdrawal, but it was like learning how to cook from scratch, my food was better in every way. You know, it was cheaper. It was more convenient. It was more delicious. It was healthier. And now at this point, I've just been, um, what's the word, conditioned that in this, in my world, people then say, yeah, well, other people don't have access to farmer's markets. They can't do what you're doing or they can't afford or whatever. And it's their story, you know, their pushback. But it actually is more accessible for people than than many people think. And, and do we want to keep things that way or do we want to change things? Do we want to get farmer's markets into food deserts? Because that's how we do it. Anyway, so that led me to this big change in mindset that, oh, maybe living sustainably is not so bad. Maybe it's better. Maybe why, like, and what, what led me to believe that it would be bad? What were the messages and, and cultural things that I'd learned? So that opened me to think, I wonder if there's other things like that. So that led me to challenge myself to go for a year without flying, which everyone's, at this point, I'm, I've been conditioned that everyone's like, oh, well, maybe you can, but I can't because I have family and I have, uh, I have uh, my income requires it. And, you know, other people need, they can't do it. They can't stop flying because of their jobs. But all, everything they say is like the stuff that applied with me too, more so. Anyway, so after a few months, I started finding that not flying was improving my life in exactly the ways that I thought it would unimprove it. So that led me to um, with a whole bunch of other little middle steps. One of them was unplugging my fridge. That led me to one time, and because I'd read that um, much of the world doesn't use refrigeration. And in fact, as everyone knows, the refrigerators didn't exist at all more than something like 100 years ago. So then with my electric bill really low, I thought, I wonder if I could get to zero. So I, just on a whim, just to see if I could do it, I went to the circuit breaker for my apartment. Which, oh, it's just out of view on my screen. And unplugged the apartment for 24 hours to see what I could do. So my then girlfriend and I, we just rode our bikes around the city and had a great time. Not hard. Yeah. That led me to, I got some solar panels I could take up to the roof. And I just thought, I wonder if I could make it a month. No idea if I could make it. No idea how I'd make it past about 24 hours. And now I'm almost done my ninth month. Mm. It was just like every day I was like, oh my God, another day, another day. And then... I kind of learned the skills to go day by day. And then I was like, another week, another week, another week. And then my first period of a few days without sunshine. So I didn't have any power for a while. 
and I did have, I do allow myself this cheat that I can, cause I work at NYU and I, I was like, I'm going to keep working there so I can charge my phone and computer there. So I did have this backup, but the actual numbers of total power used there is like really small. And my battery and solar panel are like, it's just what I bought used off of Craigslist. It's not like I prepared for it. Cause I had this idea that you did not have sailing across, the, or, uh, sorry, rowing across the Atlantic. I could say to myself, I'm not going to die if I do this. Mm. You you were risking death, but I, like unplugging my apartment, I can just plug back in. And <laughs> yeah, death was certainly not part of the aspiration. <laughs> um, I, I hoped that I'd be more valuable to the cause alive than dead. But um, yeah, I mean, there was definitely that risk. People, ocean rowers have died. Um, but I think we're maybe conditioned to believe that um, easy is good. And the sort of paradox of that, <laughs> maybe this is because I have spent over 520 days and nights out in the ocean. And when you come back after three, four, five months alone out at sea, you sort of feel a bit like an alien coming back to dry land. You look at human civilization from the outside and marvel at the weirdness of it all. So um, we're told that easy is good. And, you know, particularly by an advertising industry dedicated to selling us the latest labor-saving devices. But then we have to work so hard to earn the money to buy the labor-saving devices that I'm not sure that the the payback is, is really quite there. But meanwhile, you know, we've done our bit as consumers. We've boosted the GDP. We've boosted the profits of the company that's selling us the, the white goods and whatever. Um, and I'm certainly not, I mean, I am not a hair shirt environmentalist. I am in awe of what you're doing. Um, I love it that you are really pushing the boundaries of what we tend to believe is possible. Um, personally, I do quite like my creature comforts. <laughs> um, but I also think that when we step back, from this consumerist, materialist civilization that you and I both live in, in the developed world, where we actually go, how much has it made our lives better to have access to all of this technology and highly processed foods and whatever? Has it actually made us happier and healthier? Or could it be possible that we have an epidemic of mental health issues and obesity? And time starvation and dysfunctional families. I mean, is it actually making our lives better, having access to all of this technological advancement? I'm not at all convinced of the case. Yeah, I I don't consider myself a minimalist by any stretch. I'm living in more abundance now than ever, but it's abundance of the things that I value, Yeah, which are generally not so material things. And... I mean, January was a very overcast month, as it happens in New York City this year. And so I only got to cook food a couple times. But I'm eating all these salads. And actually, I get so much free food because I do this little volunteering when I take food that stores were going to throw away and I bring them to a, a community center for people to get for free. And the rule is the volunteers get to take a bit. And mm-hmm. there was this huge bunch of bok choy no one took. And I was like, are you really going to just throw that away? I'm, give me it all. And I, so I'm like swimming in bok choy right now, which I find super delicious. And 
Yeah, so I feel like I'm living in abundance. And the day that I, I I had to look this up, the day that I unplugged on May 22nd last year, I happened to read a book of anthropology. I don't know if you know um, uh, Sebastian Younger. He wrote a book called Tribe. Yes. And that came on the heels of, or maybe it was just before I read The Dawn of Everything. And they talk about these, what I used to think of as, as Stone Age cultures. Like when I grew up, I thought, you know, we're, we're at the height of progress. For some reason, there are these places stuck in the Stone Age. What's wrong with them? You know, unstated in what we learned was they're so stupid and we got to educate them to bring them up to us. And yet they look at us and, I mean, many of them become assimilated, but many of them are like, we don't want to, we don't, we see, yeah, we see your technology. We see all that stuff. And we don't want to give up the the freedom and equality and community and to get that. I wonder if that's what it's like it, 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 for you coming in from being at, at seas. I try to imagine what it's like being from another culture, not France or Japan, but um, not Stone Age cultures. I mean, they're very sophisticated. And I also have to say I'm conditioned to be like, no, I'm not saying noble savages. They're... <laughs> but the immediate return hunter-gatherer cultures that... No pun intended on my last name, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't notice that, but yes, not no pun on that. Um, well, there's a, a story that I tell in, in the book about a time when I was in Papua New Guinea after finishing rowing across the Pacific. And I was doing some work with um, coral reef um charity and so we were on a a sailboat moored in this harbour in Papua New Guinea next to uh, a village that by any global north metric would be impoverished I guess you know they they lived on the food from from the ocean and from the trees and yet as the sun set I heard so much laughter yeah, and I, I don't want to idealize yeah. anything here, but I, I sometimes wonder what it would be like if we could create a civilization where we had the best of each era. I know we don't get to pick and choose like this, but I think a lot of us now maybe long for a time of greater simplicity, when life seemed slower, where we didn't feel like we were perpetually just trying to catch up with the crazy pace of everything, when we weren't having to work all the hours to, you know, just get by. I wonder if there is, without wanting to sound like I'm trying to wind the clock back, but if we could just have the wisdom, I don't know, maybe we should all go out in a rowboat for a few months at sea and just like, because it really does recalibrate you. I really grew to appreciate simplicity. Life out on the ocean was very simple. Like if I'd had a few good meals and was listening to a good audio book and made a few miles in the right direction. That was pretty much a good day. And that was really all that I needed. And I, I get the sense that you also appreciate the simpler things that when you just take it down a few notches and you make the time to cook nutritious, delicious meals for yourself. I think good food is one of life's great joys, especially when we've prepared it for ourselves and where we can actually feel it nourishing our bodies. 
in a way, either a quick microwaved ready meal from the supermarket just doesn't nourish us either physically or emotionally in the same way. So I, I think maybe there is this recognition that something has gone a bit wrong with the experiment of this economic model, the human enterprise, that maybe we've just gone too far down a certain path and lost sight of certain fundamental things, like having time for our friends and our family. I think there's a lot of loneliness and disconnection that is maybe a function of our busyness as we're just running faster and faster on this crazy hamster wheel, trying to keep pace with this <laughs> um, hedonic trap that we're in. It all seems to have gone a, a bit bonkers. <laughs> this is why I was at the edge of my seat is, is this journey that I think we all want to go on because we suspect that, yes, I think everyone has deep inside their heart, this is not working out as planned. Yeah. And, but, I mean, I was just talking to someone the other day and this guy's been supporting me and, and working with me, doing a lot of design work for me. And he's not charging me. He's like the head of a, the, the firm. He's like, really great. But when faced with, and I just sat with him and talked him through limits to growth. And I know that you, I've read some blog stuff that you wrote about limits to growth. And, and I explained to him like the risks ahead of us. Cause I, I, I have to preface when I say this stuff, like I'm not talking doom and gloom to scare anyone. I'm not trying to like shock anyone, but I think it would be irresponsible not to consider what the possibilities might be. And it's going to sound very doom and gloom, but that's not, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. And it, I think I explained it pretty effectively. And he was just like, I, I don't know what to do with this. I can't, I can't change anything about my life. There's nothing for me to do because I got a kid. I got to put the kid through college. I got to pay a mortgage and stuff. Not exactly those things, but things like that. And he just felt paralyzed. But I, and I said to him, you know, you're, he's always busy. He's always running around, unable to finish anything. He's always having to cancel meetings and things like that. And there's a scene in a movie that is just to me. Have you seen the movie Goodfellas? I haven't actually. No. Oh, I, well, I apologize. I'm going to tell you. Tell me anyway. There's a scene in there's a scene in the movie where I mean it's a mob movie, a mobster movie. I know Scorsese. That it's, yeah. Okay. So in the end, there he ends up trafficking cocaine, and so he starts taking cocaine. And he starts living this super fast life, like getting everything done. And he's like, there's a scene in the end of the movie where he thinks he's being followed by this helicopter and he's trying to, like, he's got family obligations. He's got to deliver some cocaine to some people and he's got to um, uh, deliver some guns to some people and he's got to do all these things. And he's just getting it all done. And at one point he picks up, I think it's some relative from a doctor and the doctor looks at him and he's like, uh, can I give you a checkup? Because the guy's like full of cocaine and he's like really messed up and his hair is wrecked. But he feels like he's on the top. He's like, he feels like he's getting things done. He feels like he, and you look at him and it's like, he's a wreck. Yeah, he's probably sweating and red and like yeah. heart palpitating. and Exactly. Yeah. And he feels like I'm on top of the world and just a little more cocaine and I'll just get through it. And 
I mean, you wrote about addiction in, in your book too. And uh, you talk about John Paul Getty and, and that um, I never knew that story. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is like we as a civilization are addicted to this more, more, faster, faster, bigger, bigger, stronger, stronger, louder, louder. It's, oh, I feel like I wish we could just take a collective chill pill. You know, if we could just take some time out for a little while. And just, I mean, I think some people hoped that COVID was going to be this, that that was going to hit the pause button and allow us all to reconnect with what actually really matters in this life. What are the things that really bring us a sense of fulfillment and happiness? And yet it feels like we're right back into the more, more, more groove again. And I don't know how Goodfellas ends. I mean, does he just sort of like keel over with a heart attack or or, or what happens there? But it does feel like that's a great metaphor for our lives in the Western world. Yeah, it's such a great movie that I'm not going to, it's not like a big thriller, but it's a really great movie. And um, the helicopter was following him. It was the police. They do arrest him. And that causes a big change in life, um, which is the end of the movie. But it's, he doesn't kill over, but it's not sustainable. I mean, it's, he is a wreck and it is a disaster. Um, there's another scene that I see here a lot that people holding disposable coffee cups while riding their city bikes around, around town. When I talk to people about, like when I see every day, if I walk outside, I'm going to see people holding the disposable cup. And if I say to people, like, you don't have to do, you don't need the disposable. They're like, Josh, I don't have time. I wish I had time like you do, but I don't. And so I have to do this. And then they'll get on about single moms in food deserts with three kids and three jobs. And they don't have time for stuff. And, and you're so privileged that you don't get how it is for the rest of us. But the people I talk to actually do commit to not getting disposable. So they can only get their coffee sitting with their spouse and in a mug or sitting at the cafe or at work, sitting with a mug that they make the coffee. By the old view, they should have less time and get less done. But the ones who actually commit have more time and get more done. Yeah, there's this sort of myth of productivity. Yeah. That it's all about squeezing as much into every moment of the day as possible. And one of my favorite practices is to go down to the coffee shop on a Friday morning and I go with my my lovely journal which is like a really nice notebook and I have good pens and I will sit there with a latte and cake um, for you know an hour or two and just take a step back from the day-to-dayness of everything. I think how have I spent the last seven days and often I do feel very busy and there's a part of me that's as hooked on that as it is for anybody else in our western civilization um but i really try to take a step back and think all of this busyness is it actually taking me closer to my goals is it actually aligned with what's important to me i mean yeah i love ticking things off my to-do list it feels great you know you get that little sort of rush of happy hormones but if it's actually not taking me closer to my goals, if it's just busy work, um, and unfortunately, 
for a lot of people, certainly in my previous job, I did work in an office for 11 years and, and there's that sort of office culture that is a lot about, are you looking busy? Are you the first person in the office in the morning and the last one to leave? And have you, are you looking productive rather than what I try and ask myself is, is I, am I being effective rather than productive? Like the things that I'm doing, are they significant? Do they matter to me? Are they based on my values? Are they in service to my community, the world, whatever? So, um, I, I, really, I get a little bit bent out of shape if I don't have time for my weekly journal session. And it's it's a bit like that saying that um, if you don't have time to meditate for an hour, you need to meditate for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I don't have time to do my journal, it means I really, really need to do my journal because I'm probably just filling up my time with a lot of things that are actually not that important to me. So um, I wonder how we can I mean that works for me um it just helps me to stay connected to my priorities and I've been thinking a lot this week this can sound like a bit of a a juddering change of topic but stick with me I've been thinking a lot about AI this week artificial intelligence um with the emergence of chat GPT and what the game changer that's going to be and I've been thinking a lot about just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. Yeah. And that applies to so many things in our modern world, you know, a lot of um, medical advances and, you know, just because we can keep somebody alive for longer, but they're actually going to have zero quality of life. To whose benefit is that? So I think that it would be... The system that we live in, particularly the economic system, encourages us companies to be the first mover in any given industry. There is every incentive to rush to market, to do the thing, rather than thinking about, but is this actually a good idea? Is it actually going to make our world a better place? Is it going to make a contribution to the thriving of humanity? And I'm just not hearing that question asked very much at the moment. Um. Am I making sense? This is why I was at the edge of my seat, is this journey is one that, I mean, yes, you've rowed across the oceans, but that's not necessary for you to take this journey. But most people aren't, I think that they see the questions, but they don't even start it. And that's, you're taking this journey. And not, it's, anyone who thinks, Oh, because she had that epiphany in Peru or because she she did all those amazing things in the world records. Oh, she can do it, but I can't. It's, correct me if I'm wrong. Those things happen. In your case, they happen to prompt it, but they weren't necessary. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I think uh, that's why you're saying you're an ordinary person in that regard. Well, I, I feel like I really am an ordinary person. I've done some extraordinary things, but I wish it was possible to take a photograph of someone's psyche. Like, you know, before and after. Um, Because just to explain a little bit more about my backstory, um, I had a very conventional upbringing and background. My parents were both Methodist preachers. Um, I think maybe what I took away from that was the importance of having some kind of a vocation, some sense of service to the greater good. Um, 
but yeah, I was I was quiet at school. I was rubbish at sports, absolutely rubbish. Um, I was sort of the, the girly swat, the the teacher's pet, um, because mum dad moved around a lot. So that was my, I suppose, my defence mechanism was just to always have my nose in a book, and um, was lucky enough to to get a place at Oxford. Um, where I studied law and then I was a management consultant for 11 years. So for someone of my age, I'm 55, that was a very normal, like someone of a certain level of academic success. That was a very normal childhood and early early adulthood. And then when I was about 32, I suppose, and was lucky enough to be in that place where on paper, everything looked great. I had all the things that were supposed to be the, the, the markers of a successful, happy life. And my first clue that this story wasn't really working for me was the fact that I was profoundly unhappy. My self-esteem was completely going down the toilet. I was just, I was not thriving at all. And there was, I suppose Jung would call this the whole sort of individuation process. I started to ask myself those big questions of who am I? (laughs) What am I here for? What does happiness and success look like for me? Not what the advertisers are telling me or what Margaret Thatcher's telling me or any of that. It's like, what does it look like for me? And that was quite hard. You know, I really thought maybe I'm losing the plot here. What's wrong with me? Why am I not happy? I should be happy. I've got all the things that are meant to make me happy and I'm miserable. What's wrong? Am I weird? Uh, or maybe I am weird, but at least now I'm weird and happy. <laughs> so, you know, I, I really did have to ask those big existential questions and ultimately to to quit my job and to kind of go into free fall. And I, my life probably looked like a train wreck at around that time. Um, I, in fairly short order, ended up jobless, homeless and uh, divorced. But the great thing about that was that I was realising that all of those things that were the markers of a successful life didn't actually need them. It was incredibly liberating to find that um, the things that I had, quotes lost were more than compensated for by the things that I'd gained like having the time to think about things, to have long conversations with the new friends and allies and mentors that showed up in my life around that time. It was actually an incredibly fulfilling period of my life. And yes, noticing my privilege, I was lucky enough that I had a bit of money in savings, so I wasn't stressing immediately. I mean, it definitely has been an up and down ride financially over the last 23 years since I last had a proper job. Um, But um, the things that departed from my life, like I say, were more than compensated for by all of the discoveries that I was making about what actually worked for me (laughs) and made me feel happy and fulfilled. And I don't think there are any shortcuts on that. You know, in the book, I try and share the things that have worked for me, but it's a very individual journey. And I wouldn't presume to tell anybody else what should make them happy. It's really only through our own individual journey and our own personal inquiry that we can arrive at the answers to those questions. 
but it's absolutely worth the effort. And I'm so grateful that I went through that sort of existential early midlife crisis in my 30s so that I could get off that hamster wheel and to discover what what works for me and to now be living my life according to those values. So um, you said you didn't want to tell other people what would make them happy. We live in a world in which we're constantly being told this will make you happy. Do this. It'll make you happy. And no one else has this complaint. You know, Coca-Cola is not saying like, oh, I don't want to tell you what's going to make you happy. They are saying this will make you happy. And we it's really tough to I mean, we spend decades of our lives being told day after day, this will make you happy. This will make you unhappy. You're really not happy now. And and then when someone who finds out you have to preface, like, I'm not trying to tell people what will make them happy, but um, at least don't take the other, don't take Coca-Cola's word for it either. <laughs> well, um, I like the distinction that Daniel Kahneman, the um, Nobel Prize winning psychologist, draws between being happy in your life and being happy about your life. So being happy in your life can be the more sort of um, hedonistic, maybe, way of living, like maybe more of a party lifestyle whereas of being happy about your life is being able to look at it objectively a little bit detached and go yeah I feel like I'm spending my time well um on this on this planet in this lifetime and I suppose I count myself as a, a bit of a, an amateur Buddhist um I, I wouldn't presume to call myself like a, a true Buddhist but um there's a lot about Buddhism that I find tremendously supportive and helpful and particularly the more Taoist flavor of Buddhism um so there's something there about I've learned that the way that I am wired the experiences that at the time are some of the hardest are the times that I look back on and I go wow that was so worthwhile like I learned so much by rowing across the Atlantic most of it absolutely sucked while I was doing it. It was a terrible year to be on the Atlantic. The weather was awful. Loads of my equipment broke. I was injured. I was depressed. Just sucked to high heaven. But looking back on it, I am so grateful for all of the things that went wrong. You know, it's it's like the story of the Taoist farmer. And, uh, you know, he's just always like, all his neighbors going, this is great news or this is terrible news. And he's just like, we'll see, we'll see. Only time really will tell whether something turns out to have been a worthwhile experience or not. Now, I do know that's something weird about me. Um, I was, all right, a little, I don't know what your listeners will make of this story, but um, over the end of last year, I had somebody, a very wonderful astrologer, do a three-year forecast for me. And we also went into some issues around reincarnation. Now, I do believe in reincarnation. It's just something that works for me as a belief system. And the good news was, he said, you are living exactly in alignment with the purpose that you set yourself in this particular lifetime. The bad news is (laughs) (laughs) that the purpose you set yourself was to encounter really massive challenges requiring a certain degree of fights. I was like, oh, great. Well, I think I'd actually figured that much out already. I'm never happier than when I've got a big, juicy, gnarly challenge to get my teeth into. 
which is is why I'm now <laughs> planning to go into politics. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, a whole other story. So you don't necessarily. I even remember somebody saying this to me when I was out on the Atlantic. Like, you don't have to be happy to be happy. <laughs> yeah, you can be happy because you know that you're doing something worthwhile. It's just in that sweet spot. Like, it's challenging enough, but it's not taking you into complete overwhelm. Definitely the Atlantic, there were times I was in overwhelm. But, you know, to acquire mastery of something. For me on the Atlantic, the best days were when I had a breakthrough, when I realised that I had been making life unnecessarily difficult for myself because of the story I was telling myself about what was going on. And when I could change my perspective, change my story, change my attitude, it could take a highly sucky moment and actually turn it into, yay, I really learned something today. I had a psychological breakthrough. Um, I found a better way of coping. I feel like I'm going on a little bit too much, but, you know, things don't have to be easy to be good. And often hard times are our greatest teachers and the greatest gifts has been my experience. I think this is what a lot of people want. They know that it's there. They need role models to get them to take the first couple steps. Yeah. I mean, people look at me and they say, Josh, I don't have time to do the things that you do. I'd love to do them, but I don't have time. But they, they see, everyone knows correlation is not causation, but they get it backward. It's not that I have time, therefore I do these things. Because I do these things, I have time. Yeah. And I also ran around in circles and loved the feeling of productivity and accomplishment. But it was all these knickknack things that, you know, everyone knows like the experiment or the, the, the thought, of, thought, like what do you want to have on your gravestone, which I think was one of the things that motivated you as well. Yes. And everyone knows that like I'm doing these things that aren't, that I don't care about to be on my gravestone. <laughs> his to-do list what a great epitaph that would be <laughs> yeah it reminds me of there's um uh, that would be too long of a story but this oh i gotta share share with you something that that hit me while i was reading because your book starts off with a lot of uh, Bretton woods and our, our economic system and why it's the way it is and why gdp is the way it is and um which is fascinating so everyone should read it and i totally agree <laughs> One of the things, like, I'm, I'm curious about where you've reached because I think you're getting to the roots of why do we have these, like, why do we have this? The people who are working in the city of London and working the crazy hours and not out of it, to me, one of the big stories is nothing has lifted more people out of poverty than capitalism and free market. And you, I'm sure, I'm now quoting other people. I'm not saying, I don't believe this. One of the things that has really hit me is that um, when I left academia and started my first company, I took some classes at the business school and then I hadn't taken any economics before. My parents weren't economists. So I learned that this model that if I make something and I make it so well, better than anyone else, that you would like it and, and it's useful to you. I don't know. Maybe it's a really good chair. At a certain price, my chair is worth more to you than that money. And because I make the chairs, I got a lot of them. That money's worth more to me than the chair. So if we trade, you benefit, I benefit, everyone benefits. The world is better with free trade. Yes. And so I thought, okay, so my profit is a proxy for good and growth is a proxy for more good. 
And this works if everyone is consenting. So I was, I've been long motivated, inspired by abolitionism, which changed this model in something that was around for since before recorded history, slavery. In a couple generations, they made it illegal everywhere. Mm. So if one of the parties in this free trade is, if it's not, if one of the parties is a slave, this is not, then if, if you and I trade something, but in order to make the chair, I enslaved someone, that's not necessarily proxy. Like you and I might benefit, but the net, it, profit is not a proxy for good in that case. Yes. And we get that this is the case in child labor. Mm -hmm. uh, if someone's addicted, we wouldn't say that. And also if someone's polluting, if you and I make a trade, and in the process, I pollute someone else's world. Profit is not necessarily a proxy for good in, in that situation. The whole system is based on something that if profit signals bad, more that can certainly be the case. If in order to make the chair, I killed someone or you know tortured them, I think we agree that that's not acceptable. Even if the chair is really, really good. <laughs> It's all about the incentives of the system, really, isn't it? Because um, governments like to measure their success by GDP, as companies like to measure their success by profit. But GDP, as even its creator, Simon Kuznets, acknowledged, GDP is a very poor proxy for actual well-being. And I would... And it was never supposed to be that. It wasn't at all. No, it wasn't yeah. designed for that purpose. And I, I want to be really careful here because I certainly don't want to um, idealize I mean clearly there is real poverty in the world there is grinding poverty but I'm thinking of when I was in Peru which sort of led to the environmental awakening and everything else that's happened in my life seeing people living up in the Andes so this is the indigenous Peruvians, not the descendants of the Spanish conquistadors. So these are the people whose families have been living up in the mountains for countless generations, probably going all the way back to Incas and beyond. And money played very little role in their lives, but they had good food, like Peru is a very fertile country, good food, rich culture, um, pisco, uh, <laughs> a really great community. Um, and then you see the shanty towns on the outskirts of Lima, where people have left the mountains in search of a more Western lifestyle, in search of money. And so they're living in these awful little shacks outside of the capital city. I'm guessing probably doing minimum wage jobs, if they have minimum wage in Peru. Um, trying to break into that materialistic world, but they've lost their community. They've lost their access to the good food that was so bountiful up in the mountains. So they may have gone from living on a dollar a day up in the mountains, but still having access to basically food for free, community for free, babysitters for free, all of that. So maybe now living on $5 a day in their little shack on the edge of Lima, but their actual quality of life has taken a massive hit. So the statistics, are, I'm just sceptical, I suppose. Clearly in some countries, 
the rise in income has led to an improvement in the quality of life. But I think in many cases it hasn't. That when we measure things purely in financial terms without factoring in any of the many, many other ways that the other factors that contribute to a a thriving life, it really skews the picture. And um, it's just very difficult to persuade people that the, the neoliberal capitalist model is failing because so many people have invested financially and emotionally and in terms of decades of their lives into believing in that model. And I realise this is probably getting quite controversial now, but um, I do, as you know from the book, I feel like this connects with the environmental challenge as well. And it, it comes back to what you're saying about, you know, the quality of your life, but unplugging in every, you know, in every sense of unplugging um, from civilization. Well, I, I'm not unplugging from civilization. It's to me that the realizations that you're talking about, they, I guess they do sound controversial to a lot of people, but it's, we, I think we want, we know that they're there, but I think people are really afraid to start or they think it's, they think it's like going reverting to the Stone Age and, and hospitals are going to close and if you get a little cut, you're going to get gangrene and die. Or, and these stories are, I mean, we regular listeners of this podcast hear me say this quote a lot from Abraham Lincoln. The most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. And the more that I unpack this statement, the more I realize it's at the root of a lot that when you do something that you believe is wrong, you can't escape your own internal internal conflict. Yeah. And it's gonna be it's gonna be feelings of guilt and shame. And if someone points it out to you, you're gonna think, oh, you're making me feel guilty. But I can't make anyone feel more guilty than like I'm not I'm not trying to make people feel guilty. I, not at all. But you're gonna feel it if you're doing something you believe is wrong. And the way we suppress and deny it as we tell ourselves these stories well i'm powerless what i do doesn't matter only governments and corporations can make a difference and all these things that become our culture we have a culture as abraham lincoln lived in a time when there was a culture saying they people knew that they were hurting other people mm. and they were like how can i sleep at night and so they say well you know they're not human we're, we're you know they're <laughs> pun intended savages <laughs> uh you know we're bringing them to civilization um, not pun intended, but pun I was aware of this time. And that's how, you know, we're actually helping them. We're doing something good. Anyone from outside, anyone who wasn't benefiting from that culture of slavery would look at it from the outside and be like, no, that's not, you're torturing people. You're separating them from their, their children. And, and that's not helping anyone. And we are, we're living in a time when I mean, talk to anyone about what they're doing and how it pollutes. They know what they're doing is wrong. And they'll say things like, well, I can't do anything about it. And, and we've created these stories that, to, to say that we can't do anything different, that what we're doing is actually helping others. Mm. And it's really scary to get out of that because the first step is to realize I've been telling myself lies to cover up something that I believe is wrong. 
And that means all the times it was actually my choice and I've chosen to do something I didn't have to do. And I, I did something wrong knowingly. And that's really harsh. It's not I mean, that's brutal. Yeah. The, but otherwise you're living with this internal conflict and you're going to go to the grave with this internal conflict. And, and it is, I would bet rowing across the Atlantic is, is, is much easier than dealing with that. I mean, not that people have to roll across the Atlantic, but the only way out of that is to face it and overcome it. And on the other side of it, this is what no one believes. On the other side of it, it's like more free time and, and enjoying your vegetables more. And and I think if enough people do it, it's going to be this laughter and, and joy. And, and I think people looking back and being, what did we do? How did we wait so long? Yeah, the stories that we tell ourselves are so powerful. And often, so I'm trying to put this nicely, so suboptimal, let's just put it that way. Um, I think it's Daniel Schmeitzenberger who talks about how we lost the sacredness of nature, that when we started to use animals to pull our plows, right, there used to be a lot more respect between humans and other animals. Um, there was this sense of an animal, if we were going to kill it for its meat, that it sort of surrendered its its life in order to feed us. And we were grateful to it for its sacrifice. And we would use every last little piece of the carcass um, out of respect for, for that. But then um, we subjugated animals. And so we had to tell ourselves a story that they were just dumb animals, that they didn't have any kind of an inner life. And then we had to do that with people who had a different color skin from us. If we wanted to be able to exploit them or um, go to war with them, we had to tell ourselves a story that they were somehow less human than we were. So humanity definitely has a history of coming up with these narratives of convenience to justify us in some pretty horrendous behaviors. And we also come up with stories about, yeah, what we can and can't do. And I, I suppose just trying something, just taking the first step, like it doesn't have to, people might, you know, look at you and compare where you are now with where they are now, forgetting that you started by just doing a little experiment. Yeah. Like, well, let's just. Give this, let's just try a different story. Let me start to rewrite the story about myself. So your story was, am I the kind of person who can manage without buying processed foods or, you know, without having... Yeah, for one week, yeah. For, for one week. Um, so there's something there about rewriting the story about ourselves individually and collectively. So when I set out on the Atlantic, in my mind, I was still a failed management consultant. Well, I was very determined to do this thing. But when things got really tough very, very quickly, I think the first awe broke about two weeks in. Um, but I, I was just like, oh, my word, what am I doing out here? Like, I'm not an adventurer. I'm just a failed management consultant. But as time went on, and I kept showing up day after day and just making it till I made it really just pretending to be an ocean rower by the end of that first crossing I had grown into a new identity 
Like it's like I am an adventurer. I am an ocean rower. I can do this. Look, I just rode across three thousand miles of Atlantic. So that's how I think that like having a little observer in my head, that sort of watching how I show up and how I behave each day. And at first, when I set out on the Atlantic, that little observer in my head was completely freaking out. It was like, ah, like, what, what are you thinking? Get back to shore before you, something terrible happens. But then it started to adapt to the new normal. It started to go, oh, well, she seems to be quite determined to keep on rowing. So maybe there's something going on here. Like, let's be willing to change the story. And after three and a half months of rowing, by the time I got to Antigua, it was like, OK, now we're comfortable with this new story about about who I am and about what's possible. So I guess that's what we have to do is when we're trying on a new identity, we just have to keep showing up in a way that's consistent with that new identity that we want to adopt. And eventually that little observer gets on board with it and goes, OK, here we are. We're a new person now. Now, you mentioned politics. And I'm going to see if I'm not extrapolating too much here, that I think what you said about individuals, actually, first as an aside, and that process is joyful, fun process of, I mean, it, it can be grueling if you're rowing across the Atlantic. But I think that people expect like it's going to be really brutal or return of the Stone Age or something like that. But it's, I think that having gone through the steps that I've gone through, I wish I'd done it a lot earlier. And I can't wait to do the next step. Like I'm not trying to be more ascetic i'm trying to have more fun and i'm succeeding yes and i also think and because people are talking to me a lot now they're like run for office and i'm like i, I don't want to but i think am i is it fair to say to extrapolate what you're saying on the individual level you believe can happen on the national global species level that journey that discovery of like what is important what do we want uh, like what what makes us happy in the you know really happy deep happy yeah well I think we we've certainly rewritten our collective stories in the past we went from being citizens to becoming consumers because we were told consistently and from multiple different directions that it was our job to consume um, to do our bit for GDP so I would like to think that in the future that we can rewrite our story again I, I'm sort of feeling it happening already I think there is now this rejection that's growing um, person by person of being described as consumers that were going hey I'm I'm more than just my wallet you know <laughs> um, so I, I do think I feel very positive about the future I think we're seeing the end game of a lot of these structures, political, economic, power structures. We're at levels of inequality now in your country and in mine that we've never seen before in history. And I think those, everything is becoming unsustainable as it is. And I, I, I think it could be a messy process, but I do think that there's a, a hunger for a new story what Charles Eisenstein would maybe call the, the story of interbeing, like moving from the story of separation to actually recognising our connectedness um, between humans, between humans and the rest of the natural world. 
that in some ways is embracing or returning to that indigenous worldview. But it feels more important than ever now that there are over 8 billion of us. We have to recognize that <laughs> we are part of nature. We breathe it, we eat it, we drink it, we are it. So I'm, I'm feeling that story starting to emerge. And part of my motivation for going into politics is that for all of their many flaws and foibles, I still think that politicians have a, a disproportionately powerful platform in order to promulgate that new story, to actually try it out and, and say to people, you're not just a consumer, you're a, you're a citizen, you have power, you can contribute to creating a new and better future for the forthcoming generations. So I'm, I'm really feeling that change is in the air now that there's a growing awareness that this experiment that we've been in, the neoliberal experiment that really starts in the 70s and 80s, that it's it's not bringing the greatest good to the greatest number. And there are better ways of doing things, is my personal view. I have to say, when I think of Methodists who get into politics in England, I can't help but think of William Wilberforce and he certainly made an effect on the world. I'm impressed with your knowledge of uh, British and Methodist history. <laughs> As I said, abolitionism is, is, I mean, it's a big motivator for me of mm. a small number of people who changed the world in a short period of time forever. Mm. And no one wants to go back. I, I mean, I think there's some that, <laughs> I think Jeff Bezos wouldn't mind if slavery were allowed again, but I'll probably get in trouble for saying that. <laughs> Well, arguably, it still exists in uh, yeah. in Amazon facilities. <laughs> well, definitely does exist, yeah, but it's illegal everywhere. And uh, I think that what, what you said, I'm, I'm now really curious about the politics stuff, but is that a good place to end or is there, I mean, we're running out of time. and, and um, I could say a little bit more about it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm okay for a, a few more minutes. I'd love to hear that. Well, I suppose twice in my life, I've been in a place of asking the universe to give me a job to do. Mm -hmm. um, having like a, a deep longing to do something to make a positive difference in the world. And both times the universe has surprised me with its answer. <laughs> um, it's been like, you want a job? Right. Have I got a job for you? So the first <laughs> time it was roaming across oceans to raise environmental awareness. And um, then last year, after finishing writing The Ocean in a Drop, I was again in that space of, OK, what next? You know, that book really summarizes everything I've learned in the last 20 years, ties it all up with a big bow on top. And I, I was just thinking, well, OK, I could just sit on the sidelines being a commentator and critic of the existing system but I actually felt that it would be more constructive to be willing to roll up my sleeves and actually do something but I really didn't know what and it was actually on the day of the Queen's funeral uh, September the 19th 2022 that I had watched some of the funeral on TV and I was just that evening reflecting on her life of tireless devotion to public duty when I this idea just landed like a kapow and it was really just three words it was 
stand for Parliament. Uh, but I hadn't been party political, as you know from the book. I was actually extremely sceptical about politics and politicians. So this is not at all what I expected, any more than I expected to find myself rowing across oceans as someone who actually doesn't like exercise and is terrified of oceans. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of parallels between these um, these adventures. So um, I'm just going through the process now of becoming an approved candidate for the Liberal Democrat Party here in the UK, which is our third and traditionally our most centrist party. These days, parties seem to be moving around on the spectrum a bit, so it's a bit hard to tell. I think at the moment, the Lib Dems might actually be somewhat left of Labour, but it's difficult to say with any certainty. And one of the strong reasons that I decided to go with the Liberal Democrats is that they passionately believe in proportional representation, which is partly self-interest on their part, but I think it's also a deep philosophical commitment to having a more representative and inclusive democracy. Because again, it comes back to what we've been talking about a lot on this call, about people feeling powerless and disempowered. And with our first-past-the-post system that we have at the moment, a lot of votes don't actually count. So I would love to see a much more fractal kind of democracy that goes all the way from community democracy, um, fractally up to Westminster, reaching out a hand to connect into really this, this whole web from the bottom up and the top down, so that people have a much greater sense of being included, of mattering, of making a difference in the world rather than having this political system that makes so many people that feel that they're irrelevant. So yeah, that's that's really my my motivation. And it is terrifying. Um, it's a very new direction for me. I realize there's probably I don't even know how much I don't know about how to succeed in politics, but I just have to remind myself that at the start of the Ocean Rowing project, I didn't know very much about that either. So I'll just keep showing up each day and taking steps in the right direction. So watch this space. Yeah, I, I one, I can't wait to hear how things go. Two, you're making me think very differently about my being like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, just, yeah, some oars are going to break. I have no idea how you fix oars in the ocean, but you do. And I guess you didn't before. And now you do. And now it's probably like, oh, yeah, that's just one of the things you do. You get really resourceful when you're in the middle of an ocean with four broken oars and, yeah, no oar shops within easy striking distance. Yeah, duct tape. Um, unfortunately, I think things in <laughs> politics might be a little bit more challenging to fix. <laughs> but um, Well, you're not going to die in politics. I mean, British politics... I mean, I've read Richard III. <laughs> well, actually, a couple of MPs were murdered a, a few years ago. So, yeah, it does happen. I think maybe the US has got more history of assassinations than we do here. But, yeah, it, it can be can be dicey. But um, chances are good of surviving. <laughs> well, I really can't wait to hear how things go. And I hope to I, – I suspect I'm going to come back to you and ask for advice so I'm going to leave you with this thought on that, that as I'm gradually spreading the word, the first response that I get from a lot of people is we need more people like you in politics. Yeah. So that includes people like you and maybe some of the people who are listening to this, that 
if we just, I mean, I've just tended to think of politics as a complete cesspit. <laughs> and like, why would anybody want to go within a thousand miles of it? But while people that we might label air quotes as good people continue to have this massive aversion to politics, it's not going to get any better. And I actually believe that there are good people in politics. I think that maybe the incentives there reward some of the, again, suboptimal behaviours. But how are we going to change it if we refuse to engage with it? So even if it is due for a major overhaul and implosion, I, I think that there is a role for sowing those seeds of the new, even as the old structures crumble that we need to infiltrate it and change it from the inside. And that might make it a less turbulent transition into the new civilization. So I would love it if, um, you know, if, if everything goes according to plan. I'll be very curious to see who else is in that cohort that shows up at the same time. Man. Your words are striking deep in me, and I think I know what I have to do. I have to finish my book, too. Uh, and maybe that's where I'll leave this, is to thank you and also the book. You described it as wrapping things up with a bow. I described it as getting me at the edge of my seat. And read it, all you listeners. And I think of it as a platform. Like, it didn't finish things. It now says, here's what I can jump off from. It gives me... Uh, in retrospect, I, I've realised I was basically writing a manifesto. I didn't realise it at the time. But it is, here's what I think's wrong with the world. And here's where I think the world could go. And how we could create a civilization based on these values of connection and collaboration and compassion. So, um, yeah. And just to say the subtitle for The Ocean in a Drop is Navigating from Crisis to Consciousness which is really my my dream for the future and and what I think is happening right now. Ross Savage, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And keep up the amazing work. Keep on inspiring people to believe that more is possible. Same to you. <laughs> <laughs> How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.